was that whole idea, you know, the whole concept of flexibility is the key to air power? Well, flexibility is also the key to information power. If we're not able to kind of flex around those things and work with one another hand in hand within the intelligence and operations communities, we're not going to be able to carry out information operations the way that we need to carry those out. As a reminder to listeners, all topics discussed are unclassified and views expressed by guests or hosts are not necessarily the position of the United States Air Force or the Department of Defense. Welcome back to the Deciphering Doctrine podcast. My name is Captain Sharun Kashif. And I'm Captain Vijay Peoples. And we will be your hosts as we interview our guest, Dr. Josh Sipper, to discuss the concept of agile combat employment through the lens of information operations. Dr. Sipper, welcome to the podcast. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. All right. Thanks so much for having me today. I've been really looking forward to this. I love talking about uh, information operations, about uh, all the things that surround, especially in the cyber warfare realm. But I'm a professor of cyber warfare studies over at Air Command and Staff College. And um, this year we just started our cyber specialization which is, uh, consists of two tracks. I run the operational track, which consists of two courses, Cyber ISR and Cyber Electromagnetic Warfare. And uh, Dr. C.J. Horn runs the other one, the other track, which is a strategic track, which is a, a two-term elective on strategic cyber warfare. But um, over the last several years, um, I've been here at Maxwell Air Force Base. Uh, last three or so years, I was at the, before I was at Air Command Staff College, I was the Air Force Cyber College and uh, developed a bunch of courses over there, a couple of the ones I already mentioned. Before that, uh, I was, for about for about nine years, I was over at the LeMay Center. So I got to know a lot about doctrine, got to know a lot of the folks who did doctrine there, actually wrote the doctrine and worked with them. I was one of a three-person team who actually uh, created the Doctrine web application. So if you ever go to Air Force or AF, doctrine.af.mil, I'll get it right here in a moment, and check that out. Uh, that's where all of the Air Force Doctrine is kept. Um, before that, I was at the 26th Network Operations Squadron, and I was the Chief of Cyber Crew Sanival there. And before that, I was in the Intel community, worked for Lockheed Martin after uh, for a few years after I had separated from the Air Force as a uh, elite mission supervisor for the U-2 mission. So I've had you know, a long career from Intel, the Intel community, all the way up into cyber uh, for the last uh, many years of my career, and still loving it, still enjoying it, and so happy to be here today. Great, great. Glad to have you. Um, so, Dr. Sipper, what is information operations? So, information operations really revolves around actually using information to influence operations in the information environment and also in the operational environment. And it's important to understand that the information environment is not distinct from the operational environment. It's a part of it. So the two really work together hand in hand to influence how commanders uh, on our adversaries, our adversary commanders actually make their decisions, influence their decision cycle to try to slow that decision cycle down and simultaneously speed up our own decision cycle so that we can essentially out decide our adversaries in uh, the information environment and in the operational environment. So that kind of gives you a little bit of background, a good place, maybe foundation to start from. Awesome. So Dr. Sip, we talk a lot about ACE and we look at ACE as a proactive and reactive operational scheme of maneuver executed within the threat timelines to increase survivability while generating combat power. Now, what would a good IO campaign be in regards to the ACE construct? 
So, uh, so much of it, again, like you said, as far as agile combat employment is concerned, is about survivability. It's about uh, being able to continue operations in, in difficult situations. And information operations really comes down to, uh, partly, it can be a support activity. So, ensuring that all the communication lines are open, ensuring that we have um, sustainability and so having resiliency is, is extremely important in uh, information operations and for ensuring that agile combat employment can be, can be actually carried out. So um, from an information operations standpoint, uh, using things like electromagnetic warfare, using ISR to ensure we have the right information calculus to start from. Also, of course, using cyber operations and cyber warfare to ensure that we have the information that all that pilots need, that air crews need, that everybody needs to be able to carry out operations in the information environment and in the operation environment are extremely important. So I would say that's probably the most important part of it. Dr. Super, if you could paint a picture for us and tell us what a uh, information operations campaign may look like. Absolutely, Sharon. Yeah, this is uh, kind of one of my favorite parts. Whenever I lecture, I like to talk about and give some different vignettes of uh, different ki kinds of information operations uh, that are actually that have occurred in the real world. And one of my favorites, what I sort of call the PSD resistance, is a, an operation that was carried out by Israel and Syria. It's called Operation Orchard. And in Operation Orchard, what, what happened is Syria decided they wanted to build a nuclear facility in the middle of nowhere, Syria with some uh, nuclear scientists from North Korea. And so they said about their work back around 2006-2007 timeframe, well, Israel and Syria aren't really friends, and so Israel is always keeping tabs on what Syria is doing. And through their great intel collection, they were able to figure out, okay, Syria is starting to build this nuclear facility, and they started surrounding it with IADs and all these different things. So then they began to collect in the electromagnetic spectrum all these different things and try to put together a picture of just what the IAD system looked like. So already you have a couple of information-related capabilities right off the start. You have intel collection going on that's telling them what's going on there, and then you have information in the electromagnetic spectrum, you know, collection through ISR for that, and putting that picture together. So so after they started putting all that stuff together, they decided, well, how are we going to get in there without this IAD sensing us so that we can go in and bomb? What they decided to do is implant a cyber uh, malware into the IADs around that facility. So they were able, by some fashion, I don't know if they had someone actually take it in there and plug it in or whatever it may be, but they were able to get a worm into their IAD system, which propagated itself through and essentially made it look like there was nothing on the radar scopes when these Israeli F-15s flew in there, cratered everything, and then flew back home with complete impunity, which leaves that information operations flavor of, hey, we can come in, we can do what we want without, you know, with impunity, complete impunity, get back home and be free and clear. And uh, I think Syria probably will remember that, and North Korea, for that matter, will remember that for quite a long time. That's a great example. And uh, for the people that don't know what IADS is, it's Integrated Air Defense System. And then that makes me happy because that's a perfect integration of intelligence and information operations. So great example, sir. Thank you. With respect to ACE and you mentioned ISR, how important is a PACE plan? Oh, yeah, very, very important. And I'd say a PACE plan uh, is even more important whenever you're talking about sustaining communication, sustaining information traffic, especially within a wartime scenario or operational scenario. 
um, you know, pace meaning, obviously, if for those who, who don't know this, uh, the primary um, alternate contingency and emergency uh, methods of actually sustaining operations. So if my primary communications channels, say from a cyber perspective, are diminished, then I need to have an alternate pathway to follow. And a lot of that is built into networks, alternate routes, alternate uh, routers, alternate pathways, you know, uh, gateways are set up, different things like that. But a pace plan is extremely important to ensure that operations continue to, to move forward. And from an agile combat employment perspective, it's that agility and that resiliency that we're really looking for uh, from an informational standpoint to ensure that communications lines stay open, that we have SATCOM relays, that we have, um, you know, to be able to use uh, Nippernet, Cipernet, JWIX, uh, NSANet, whatever we need to be able to bring the information to the warfighter in a timely and complete fashion. Um, Dr. Slipper, I'm going to circle back to something you said earlier. You mentioned uh, your IC um, intelligence community background. You mentioned information operations and ISR, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance. Um, I'm an intelligence officer also. Uh, we understand that um, information operations and ISR have a symbiotic relationship together. Could you expand upon that? What um, information-related capabilities, a subset of information operations, uh, does ISR leverage? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Information operations and ISR are extremely intertwined. Um, if you think about it just from a historical standpoint, um, you know, human beings have been doing information operations and intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance from ages, ages past. I mean, you go back all the way to Sun Tzu. You go back to um, ancient Greece. You know, the Bible talks a lot about gathering intelligence and using information. I mean, all of these things together. Um, from a and I'll I'll speak a little bit from a cyber perspective on this too, just from the ancient history kind of way of looking at this. A lot of people don't know this, but the word uh, cyber comes from the ancient Greek word kyberneti, which refers to uh, a ship captain or someone who steers or guides or governs, or in this case, a boat through the water. But from an information standpoint, it's all about guiding information through systems, and that's like human systems and all these different things. But when it comes right down to it, that's exactly what we're trying to do with information operations, what we're trying to do with ISR, we're trying to do with cyber operations and um, electromagnetic warfare, all these things together, is trying to guide information through systems, both human and machine, and to be able to prosecute operations using all of this information together. So being able to intertwine all of those pieces together and especially from an information operations and ISR standpoint is just absolutely critical to being able to win in a peer fight especially. So I, I wanted to kind of throw something back at you guys a, a little bit because you're uh, from the Intel background and you, VJ, what kind of background? Uh, cyber. Oh, cyber. Yeah, oh, that's with, right. With cyber the, back. Specialization and more of an XCOM. Fantastic. Deal, yeah. Fantastic. So I guess you guys may have operationally seen a couple of things that have taken place. Can you give any examples from your perspective that would maybe help me understand where you're coming from? Well, not what I've actually seen, but my biggest concern is we talked about defense earlier. Yeah. Sharon talked about being uh, on the defensive side. How are we going to defend weapon systems in mm. these austere locations? Cyber protection teams? Mm -hmm. Do we do uh, mission defense teams? What does that look like from a cyber perspective and in an ACE construct? 
I will say, and I know that you're probably very familiar with this, VJ, um, and you too probably, Sharon, um, the idea of defending forward and persistent engagement and hunt forward type activities. And it's extremely important to have CPTs and MDTs and things like that that are in positions where they can look into sort of next door networks to our adversaries. And it's really interesting right now, especially with operations we're seeing in Ukraine, that for over the last you know four, five, six years, uh, ever since the whole Crimean conflict, so much of what Ukraine and the U.S. and Europe, you know, writ large, has learned from those activities, have allowed us now to actually be more present within networks that are closer to Russia, learn more about their network activities, gather more information about that, and be able to turn that around and use what we've learned, especially Ukraine has been able to use what they've learned against Russia within the the current conflict. And I think that's going to be very important from a Chinese perspective as well to ensure that we're staying on top of that, that we're staying in, you know, close by networks, maybe around Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Australia, you know, anywhere over in that area where China may be trying to push their own presence and then learning from that and being able to have a better decision making calculus going into a peer fight in the information environment and operational environment in the future. So, yeah, appreciate that. That question is awesome. Thank you. Um, Dr. Sipper, you mentioned that uh, redundancy and resilience gets us agility in the ACE construct. What other information operations related or information related capabilities also are ACE enablers? Oh, well, absolutely. Electromagnetic warfare. I I, I would start with that one and the the electromagnetic spectrum just as a whole, because you think about uh, the A2AD and that's anti-access area denial for the uninitiated uh, capabilities that China and Russia as well have. But China, especially if you were to look at the range rings of their radar systems, um, early warning and otherwise on a map, you'd see that some of those range rings reach almost to Australia. I mean, it's just an enormous area. They have built uh, islands off the coast where they have put radar systems to give extra early warning, you know, capabilities to incoming air and sea uh, assets. Um, it, it's it's just astounding. It's amazing. And for if we're going to, you know, get deeply into the electromagnetic warfare side of that, of course, it, that's dependent upon intelligence, ISR. You, be, you have to collect all those RF signals and all the other parametrics that you need from an ELINT standpoint to be able to fight in the electromagnetic spectrum and use electromagnetic warfare. And then, of course, you know, electromagnetic warfare is also conjoined with cyber operations because if you don't have your operational uh, network set up to be able to actually access the data and data basis to be able to do good electromagnetic warfare, to be able to update uh, pods on aircraft that do EW or on ships for that matter from the electromagnetic warfare information repository or eware and other resources that are they're out there that they're using those ways then you're not going to be able to do electromagnetic warfare which means you're going to lose out in the information space as well so it's all so tied together you can see how it's just woven into this pattern that you almost can't break apart because if you try if you keep those things siloed then you're not going to be able to operate against a peer adversary like 
China or Russia, um, and even some rising near-peer adversaries like Iran and North Korea who are working hard to improve their A2AD capabilities and their operations in the information environment and operational environment. Definitely, definitely. And I just want to add to that, that at the heart of this is um, our human capital, our workforce, our multi-capable airmen that need to be trained and equipped to um, basically cater to or um, go act against these uh, next-gen or next-level uh, threats. Absolutely. And that's a really good point, Sharoon, because you think about when, when you start to talk about information-related capabilities and different ways of using information, and you, especially if you look at the 16th Air Force and the way they're doing operations there across the board, you know, 16th Air Force basically came from combining 24th and 25th Air Force, so cyber and ISR, into 16th Air Force, and then including things like information operations, electromagnetic warfare, weather operations, public affairs, all these pieces together. But the thing is, if I am someone who is in ISR, it's probably important for me to have some knowledge, at least, of the basics of cyber operations and electromagnetic warfare and whether, you know, all of these different pieces. So it's becoming even more important for us to have multi-capable airmen within the scheme of maneuver uh, for information operations and information you know related capabilities bringing all those pieces together cross flowing those and bringing them into a confluence where we can do operations in the information environment and operational environments in ways that we haven't done in the past and doing it in creative ways that outsmarts our adversaries dr sipper with isr or intel working so closely with cyber do you see there being a a conflict on with Title 10 and Title 50. I know Title 10 is more so like DOD mm -hmm. and Title 50 is more so ISR Intel community. Mm -hmm. Do you see there being a conflict that we were actually downrange in the fight? Before I talk about that though, let me explain a little bit about what, you know, the difference between Title 10 and Title 50. Title 10 is essentially the operations piece of what the military is trying to do across the board. And in the past, uh, so much of operations has been wrapped up in that those those law sets and things of that sort. The Title 50 side is usually more along the lines of what our intelligence collectors do, you know, who they can collect from, uh, especially in foreign ent entities versus U.S. persons and things of that sort. So there's generally been this dividing line between Title 10 and Title 50 of, okay, you stay on your operations side and I'll stay on my intel side and we won't try to cross each other's boundaries but that's where we're going kind of going with the conversation now is just how flexible can we be and what seems to be happening is uh, I, I don't want to say stepping over boundaries and stepping over lines but you know a recognition that in order for operations to be carried out there needs to be some flexibility around those different titles and recognition of being able to communicate among entities as they do operations across those titles because from a title 10 operations standpoint obviously in the past it's been about okay only the operators are going to actually do warfare only the operators are actually going to actually be able to prosecute these different activities versus your intelligence collectors from a title 50 standpoint who are only able to collect information not necessarily do operations well that has 
moved, that has shifted, that has changed in, in different ways. And it's interesting to see how that's happened, especially at the Cybercom and NSA levels, because you have these entities there who are operating in information spaces side by side all the time. And it's important for them to be able to flex and control information in ways that allow them to operate in the best way possible. Because that whole idea, you know, the whole concept of flexibility is the key to air power. Well, Flexibility is also the key to information power. If we're not able to kind of flex around those things and work with one another hand in hand within the intelligence and operations communities, we're not going to be able to carry out information operations the way that we need to carry those out, especially against an adversary who doesn't have things like Title 10 and Title 50 to concern themselves with. So I, I won't say that those walls, those barriers are broken down. But I will say that there's a great deal of cross flow that has occurred, especially over the last decade uh, in, in those environments. Yeah. Dr. Slipper, I want to talk about this um, aspect of information operations that's often overlooked. You touched upon it uh, briefly. I want, want to see if you could discuss this more is um, strategic messaging or mm. public affairs or mm. communications to get strategic effects. Uh, that is a subset of information operations. How does that or does that have application in ACE? Uh, yes, I, I would say very much so. When you think about things like public affairs and messaging and things of that sort, and they, they tie so closely with everything else we do, the great thing about public affairs is that that's, they're basically all about telling the truth. You know, it's all about trying to get the information out there to people to say, okay, our adversaries are lying in this way. They're using disinformation, which is then perpetuated as misinformation. And we need to be able to dispel the myths that our adversaries are putting out there to try to bring a clear truth to everybody who's operating within the information environment. And that's not just the people who are in the military or at government levels. That's the populace of the world, the globe, because we have that kind of global reach from a PA standpoint that we don't necessarily have within the Intel community or uh, from the 16th Air Force standpoint or even Cybercom. So being able to leverage that global reach through information that PA brings to the table is extremely important. And I believe it does make us more agile because then we're able to pull on those threads and be able to have a better decision calculus as a result of being able to message not just to our adversaries, but to the world the truth that we are getting out there in front of people to say okay here's what operations we're we're doing here's why we're doing them and here's the truth behind them to allow us to be able to operate more freely within the operations and information environment awesome so tagging on <clears throat> excuse me i'm sorry Speaking on public affairs, is social media a dimension of I.O. that the U.S. has exploited? And if so, are there any potential advantages or disadvantages to using social media as an IRC? Hmm. Yeah, social media. That, that's a really interesting topic because social media is, you know, in the human uh, psyche is still kind of this developing I don't want to call it a monster, but this thing, you know, that we're trying to still wrap our minds around and still trying to to function around because it shifts and changes all the time. Um, there's an interesting um, uh, project that's been going on for years up, up at the University of Alabama at Birmingham run by a gentleman named Gary Warner, and it includes 20 to 30 students. And, and what they do is something called SOCMENT, uh, which is kind of a field of OSINT, 
or, op or open source intelligence. Sockment stands for social media intelligence. And the idea is that these students, under the tutelage of, of Mr. Warner, uh, actually track down criminal and terrorist elements within different auspices of social media. So like for Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or many other uh, uh, companies like that. And they root those, they, they actually report those to Facebook or whatever they're actually working for. And they'll go in and remove that presence uh, from their social media site, their social media platforms. Really interesting way of, of doing that and thinking about that kind of intelligence. Now, a lot of those companies are doing their own kind of work now, but UAB is still doing that kind of work. There's lots of other companies who actually do that kind of work. They're doing this social media intelligence to track down these um, elements that are uh, unsavory within these social media sites so that they can remove them. And, and I see that as, you know, just one more example, one more space where we're trying to ensure that the information that is actually being spread across the globe through social media sites or whatever it may be is the best information we can see and the best information we can deal with. And also ensuring things like, so the operation y'all may have heard of Glowing Symphony that was carried out by JTF Ares, a joint task force that's under MAR4 cyber, so the Marine Forces cyber. Uh, that happened uh, a few years ago and what had happened is out of ISIS had grown a cyber caliphate. And so the whole idea of Operation Glowing Symphony under JTF Ares was to go and uproot that cyber caliphate and destroy it by taking away their social media presence so they couldn't recruit, so they couldn't do coordinated activities for operations, so they couldn't do different financial transactions coordination through social media and other outlets. They were able to uproot their dark web presence, they were able to uproot their surface web presence, and to bring that cyber caliphate to a halt completely. And that fight still continues today in other auspices of, you know, so, uh, criminal groups, terrorist groups, things of that sort. But that was really the first big example that we saw of really that kind of warfare occurring in the information space that is social media. So I expect to see more of that as, as time goes by because social media is only growing and it's not tending to go anywhere. And we have to be concerned with that in a peer fight just as much as we do in a fight with uh, terrorist organizations or criminal organizations and things of that sort. I wanted to talk briefly about um, legality of things, Dr. Sipper. Uh, we use terms such as defensive, offensive, um, our strategy to approach the enemy. Uh, I understand we're a force for the good, but does or do information operations or information-related capabilities under the ACE construct follow the law of armed conflict, uh, hmm. LOAC? Very interesting idea, and it's still kind of one of those areas where it's it's hard for us to wrap our minds around because, from an international law standpoint, there the UN Charter actually has laws that are being used to govern the way we do things in cyberspace and in the information environment and things of that sort. But whenever you bump that up against the way that some other countries look at it from a law standpoint, it's not it doesn't necessarily marry up completely. There's a, a manual called the Talon Manual. That, I don't know if you all have heard of that before. It is not law, but it's a lot of really good law suggestions. It was developed in Talon, Estonia back uh, several years, about a decade ago, after uh, Russia had hacked into Estonia's network and caused a lot of problems there, done a massive cyber attack on Estonia. 
And Estonia decided to stand up and, you know, start actually trying to fight back against this by writing down some international law suggestions. And they have a huge conference there every year called SICON, where they delve even deeper into the strategy and policy pieces of, of this. So as far as, you know, obeying international law, obeying the law of armed conflict, things of that sort, I believe that those that we're, we're staying right where we should be with that and actually trying to reach farther and farther into, okay, how are we establishing norms? How are we establishing law? How are we establishing agreements with international partners about how this should really be done? Because it's becoming more and more important, especially as we see there are so many uh, peer competitors out there who don't necessarily adhere to the same values, norms, etc., and laws as, as we do. So, Dr. Sipper, as we talk about um, ACE and our adversaries, how do you see us protecting our ICS or our industrial control systems or SCADA systems? Or better yet, how do you see us attacking China or Russia's ICS or SCADA systems? Hmm. That's a great question, VJ. So much of what we do today is based off of our ability to be able to transport things like fuel and ensure that we have access to electricity, to be able to have drinking water, you know, all these things that make it possible for us to operate just simply as human beings, but also in the operational environment, the information environment, and so on and so forth. And I think a lot about as you were mentioning, industrial control systems and supervisory control and data acquisition systems or SCADA systems, those are so tied into uh, what we call Web 4.0 now or the industrial Internet of Things. Well, a lot of people don't realize that we also have a military Internet of Things. You know, so much of what we do in the military is all tied together. We have space vehicles, we have aircraft, we have land vehicles, you know, ships, all these different things. And they're tied into these networks. They're tied into this big military Internet of Things. And that really becomes comes platform technology, which is tied into something like an industrial or control system or SCADA system that we have to concern ourselves with. How are we operating that? How are we defending that? How are we ensuring that that is safe? I just recently had an article published in the Journal of Information Warfare that is all about industrial control systems, critical infrastructure, and information warfare, the information-related capabilities that are surrounding those different pieces of what we do so and from especially from a critical infrastructure standpoint and the way that i took that conversation in the article was to say okay we concern ourselves so much as far as critical infrastructure is concerned with cyber um, vulnerabilities and cyber threats but we aren't really thinking very deeply about the electromagnetic warfare threats or the electromagnetic spectrum threats we're not thinking about the intelligence threats or the, the kind of intelligence that is being collected on our critical infrastructure and how to keep those secrets secret. Uh, we're not thinking about how information operations may affect the you know, American society's uh, way of looking at the way we're doing critical infrastructure and, and all of these things. Well, in order for us to be able to stay agile in those systems, we have to concern ourselves with those as well to ensure that we can continue operations. 
Well, it's the same thing for what I called a moment ago the military Internet of Things. We have to concern ourselves with all these information-related capabilities. We have to concern ourselves with making sure that all of those are operating as they need to operate. And also, what we talked about earlier, the redundancy, the resiliency, that's a part of ensuring those operations continue so that we can have the agile combat employment. But again, that goes back to multi-capable airmen. Do we, are, are we tying the capabilities back to people? Are we operating not just in the information spaces technically, but also cognitively to ensure that our multi-capable airmen are able to operate and interoperate across the information space to ensure we have continuity of operation and agile and agile combat employment and have the resiliency and redundancy that we absolutely that are absolutely critical in order for us to continue information uh, or operations in the information environment and the operational environment. Yeah, that's awesome, uh, Dr. Sip. I didn't mean to cut you off because you're spinning gold, but it, it's kind of scary when you think about ICS and SCADA systems and those being attacked. Let's say, for example, if we're on a um, um, a Ford operating base. Yes. Or or I think, as Doctrine says, a FOS, a Ford operating site. Yes. Um, if one of the ICS or SCADA systems is attacked, have you, I don't know if you've seen the movie Die Hard 4 yeah. when they had yeah. the fire sale. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. A lot of people. Know, Right. Yeah. Everything must go. So that's kind of <laughs> it's kind of scary. And like in regards to multi-capable airmen, how do we train airmen who haven't dealt with defending <laughs> ICS or SCADA systems? How do we how do we train those kind of airmen? Yeah. And I, I think a lot of that comes down to, you know, uh, having them get the hands on education and training that you absolutely have to have to do that. But also, you know, making sure that we're flexible enough so that we can teach them the things they need. I mean, every airman is going to need to specialize in something, but they need to know, like I said a while ago, something about the other pieces of this. Right. And, and, and also about how we turn that around on our adversaries. Like, and I forgot to get to that piece of the question a minute ago, VJ, so I apologize. But a really good piece of the question that you asked was, how are we going to turn this around? on our adversaries? How are we going to think through the problems of, okay, how are we going to bring their industrial control systems to a halt? Or how are we going to at least interrupt those? You know, what we're seeing in Ukraine right now is so different from what we saw back in 2014, 2015 timeframe when there was interruption to critical infrastructure, you know, electricity and water and all these different things that Russia was doing in Ukraine uh, during the Crimean conflict now they've just gone full kinetic now it's all about okay let's just bomb the things you know let's just use drones to you know they call them suicide drones or whatever you want to call them to fly into uh substations or whatever it may be to to take away power uh, from the ukrainian people in, in kiev or wherever it may be that they're trying to continue operations and it's interesting to see how that's kind of working and how they're doing those things because those may be issues we have to turn to those may be things we have to think about in the information environment you know in the future and and how we're going to do that do we want to go kinetic is kinetic the best way to go or would it be momentary lapses in uh, in electricity or dam operations or shipping or trucking or whatever it may be that continues fuel flow that continues to uh, allow our adversaries to operate in kinetic space and non-kinetic space if you just think about the colonial pipeline hack that took place uh, a ransomware attack you right. know that was perpetrated by Russia uh, not that long ago here in the United States that brought fuel flow to a halt along the whole eastern seaboard in the United States 
unprecedented. I mean, um, amazing that that simple type of attack could actually bring that type of, in, of uh, critical infrastructure of delivering fuel to a halt in the almost the entirety of the eastern United States uh, of America. And seeing that, you know, thinking, thinking that through and going, okay, well, how can we apply that in a wartime scenario to be able to stop fuel transport to aircraft or to land vehicles or ships or whatever it may be that uh, China or wh whomever may be trying to use in the kinetic space? Or to just continue operating, you know, their uh, their capabilities in the information space because you have to have electricity, you have to have you know cooling, you have to have all these things to be able to operate in the information space and have your server farms working like they're supposed to. So these are just uh, there's so much entanglement that we have to really try to suss out and 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 get into and dig into to try to figure all these issues out. So, and Dr. Slipper, I just wanted to mention or get your take on how information operations to a combatant commander or a deployed commander in a conflict or as a uh, tool in his ace tool belt um, is almost a combat-credible deterrent against the adversary. And us keeping up on the defensive, us keeping up on the offensive, continues to provide us a deterrent against the adversary. Absolutely. that There is no doubt about that. A, a lot of, you know, the way I hear it put is, um, reveal to deter, conceal to win. So in this case, there are so many things that we want our adversaries to know at some level about just how much power we can bring to a fight. And if we can bring the power to the, in the information environment to a fight such that our adversaries see, oh, you know, we need to back down from, from this for this reason or the other, whether it's, let's say, economic or military or information, you know, whatever part of the dime model you want to look at, our adversaries have to concern themselves with just how much power we can inject into a fight uh, in the operation and information environments. So yeah, a big, big, big part of that, Sharon. Great. And sir, could you uh, clarify dime for our listeners? Oh, sure. Dime is generally the model is diplomatic is the D, information, I, uh, military, M, and economic is E. And uh, so much of, of the way that we think about uh, international relations, the way that we actually uh, fight in the information space and operational spaces, we think about how much entanglement is in, you know, between all those different pieces of the dime model. Something that uh, I, I've talked a lot about in the past, and I think there's probably been a lot of discussion between y'all as well, is uh, the fact that we are so entangled with China economically. You know, we hurt China, we hurt ourselves. And China knows this too. China hurts us economically, they hurt themselves. That level of entanglement in just that part of the dime model really changes our decision calculus in a lot of situations. It makes us kind of rethink some things that we're trying to do in the economic sphere against China or them against us. And we have to think about that not just from an economic standpoint, but also an information standpoint, also a military standpoint, and definitely a diplomatic standpoint. So, you know, whenever we're talking about or trying to decide how we're going to do operations, we have to always think about how that affects not only us, but our adversary, which could come back to affect us again. That's going to do it for today's episode of the Deciphering Doctrine podcast. This podcast is produced by the LeMay Center, mixed by Air University Public Affairs, and conducted by students at Squadron Officer School. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.